This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Magical Artifacts. The Shakespeare Riot. Jekyll and Hyde. And Dick Nixon. FBI. Remember Once Upon a Time? The fairy tale storytelling card game? That's the one. Do I? It's been an evergreen bestseller for 25 years now. Did you know there's a new expansion this holiday season? As a matter of fact, I put the copy for this ad in this week's grip, so not only do I know that, I also know that fairy tale mashups brings specific characters and situations from classic fairy tales to Once Upon a Time. So where original Once Upon a Time has a king and uh, something that can fly... Fairy tale mashups bring specifics like Puss in Boots, Humpty Dumpty, and a beanstalk. So it has hilarious juxtapositions. Check! Immediate accessibility for anyone who's ever heard a fairy tale. Check! An ending card that implies the three bears were eaten by a giant sheep. Spoiler alert! Once Upon a Time is a fairy tale storytelling card game great for role players and card gamers of all ages. It's a perfect holiday gift item and its new expansion fairy tale mashups releases this November. Visit atlas-games.com for more information. Or get the to thine friendly local game store. Where every gamer lives happily ever after. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we've got our uh, plus two table of calm reasoning. We've got our plus three shag carpet of dice hiding. Why? We've got nothing but magical artifacts as far as the eye can see, because Robin, the real magic is the friends we meet along the way. And also it's a sword. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> a very, very powerful sword. Right, because... People will be our friends if we have a powerful sword. Right, yeah. Everyone can be friends with a powerful sword. Ask anyone. Ask Elric. Don't ask Elric. Yeah. Ask instead Patreon backer Elias Helfer. Who's a friends our sword ate along the way. Exactly. He is so far uneaten, and as a Patreon backer, he is utilizing his UKs to ask us about making great magical artifacts, and I assume... Uh, Stormbringer would count as one, but perhaps it means one of the ones that we make here, here in the hut. Robin, do you have any quick go-tos for making a great magical artifact as opposed to running your finger down the table in the dungeon mastering guide of whatever game you happen to be playing and finding one that sounds perfectly rotten? Let's, as as we often do in the gaming hut, begin by stating the obvious, which is that a great magical artifact is one that the characters care about. And uh, ideally, uh, one that they know about ahead of time and desire, and uh, that once they get it, it confers exciting story activity rather than just becoming another bonus on the character sheet. Uh, so the archetypal uh, artifacts are in uh, the first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, where there are a bunch of them that uh, the uh, players who are, of course, enjoined by the book to never read the Dungeon Master's Guide <laughs> in a, a, a fit of delicious secrecy that, of course, led all players, can say it along with me, to read, read the, the Dungeon, Dungeon Master's, Master's Guide. Guide. And when they read it, they saw the hand of Vecna and the eye of Vecna and all of these other exciting the things. deck of they, many things. Uh, 
the deck of many things that they uh, urgently uh, wanted to uh, swindle their uh, innocent dungeon masters into providing to them. And so that right off is, uh, I think, uh, an early tip, which is whatever it is that you make up, it might be fun to have the characters just sort of come upon it and then find out what it is. That's also exciting because then you have to go and interact with people and learn the history of this object. Uh, But one that they uh, know about in advance and covet I think is a uh, an exciting uh, first uh, step. And of course, uh, if we're talking magical artifacts, we're kind of thinking F20, and that means uh, it should be powerful, man. Yeah. Don't kid around. Uh, make sure it's even sort of unbalancingly powerful so that the uh, players will uh, have a strong motivation to hold on to it because, of course, another exciting story thing that can happen is that uh, people can come and try and take it from you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, what do you think are the the ingredients of this thing that people are going to try and cock us on the head and take away from us? I think that uh, you make a good point, first of all. Um, you make several good points, as is your won't. Uh, I would add to that litany of qualities that a great magical artifact should have is something that is evocative of the game world that you're taking part in, that you're playing in. It should ideally be something that could only happen in that game world. It's something that is as core to its... Uh, story and themes and reality is Stormbringer or the deck of many things. Um, and that quality of being part of the world and part of the player's uh, fevered desire makes it a great magical artifact because that will set off story effects. Even if the artifact itself is just a plus five hammer, the fact that everybody else in the whole cosmos wants it is a story effect as well. Right. And, and a way to make something part of the world is to make it part of the the history and backstory. So, for example, I'm working on the Big Rubble book for uh, the current version of RuneQuest, and one of the uh, new additions to that book is a chapter called History as Loot. Uh, and uh, it takes you uh, through the whole history of this area back from uh, pre-time and the war between the gods to the present day by listing a series of artifacts that are, each of them, archetypal for a given period in the long and and complex history of this particular spot that is now mostly a ruin full of loot. Um, And so uh, you can, for example, uh, find a uh, a cord that is uh, unbreakable, which is not a a super powerful thing, but uh, one that invites all sorts of experimentation and play. What can I do with an unbreakable cord? And if you go off and try to uh, sell it or get it appraised, you find out, oh, well, this is one of the hairs on the head of the giant Paragura who uh, conquered the uh, the city from the god learners in the uh, 8th century. And uh, and it's like, wow, I have this thing that is uh, part of this pivotal event. And also it's a, oh, it's a weird, creepy hair. Oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe I do want to sell it. And it talks about that sometimes these artifacts are more valuable uh, to collectors than they are to uh, adventurers, who, of course, are often a uh, cash-strapped lot. Yeah. And so it gives you a, a choice right off. It's like, do we want to use the power of this item, or do we just want to get a bunch of money, which we can then divide between everybody else in the group? And so uh, I would say uh, an, an additional thing is, and this is something you could do, just sort of a, a standard idea for whatever artifact it is, something that makes the group figure out what to do with it, whether it's go off and get it appraised, turn it in for cash, uh, go uh, conduct experiments to find out exactly what it is, but something that impels you to action. That isn't just something that you, okay, it's a big sword, 
Give it to the sword guy. Okay, write it on the character sheet. We're good. The um, uh, other thing that you can do with a, a magic item that makes it part of your story is you give it to them early, and only as they go up in level do they un- unlock its true potential. Uh, your magic ring that you find in the dungeon uh, that sort of makes you a little bit invisible, and then later on you're discovered as the way to destroy the Dark Lord... That's a pretty great magic item, and 13th Age formalizes this so that when you find your sword, it's a plus one sword, and then it becomes a plus two sword, and then it becomes a plus three sword, so that you never throw your old beloved sword away when you find a newer, shinier one on the ground, unless the newer, shinier one has more story salience, and then you have to actually make a choice, because it's maybe not... Uh, a mechanical advantage to have this new sword, but it's a story advantage. And now you have a decision to make as opposed to just two is bigger than one. Of course, I want plus two. Yes, yeah, so Earthdawn did that as well. And it's a really clever uh, trick because the sort of old D&D paradigm of, oh, you, uh, you got a plus two sword. Well, just throw the plus one sword on the pile uh, mm-hmm. devalues them, right? It makes it right. less exciting. So if the artifact goes up in power as you do if it goes up in levels along with you if you're unlocking new abilities along the way that makes it so much more exciting and and as you suggest some of those abilities can tie into um, the the world just the way that the seemingly just sort of everyday kind of invisibility ring from the hobbit turns out to uh, be the most important thing in the world in the Lord of the Rings. Another thing that you can do with a great uh, magical artifact, in addition to effects on the world, non-standard or exciting uh, uses in play or stuff that the characters have to think creatively about, as opposed to just adding one bonus and forgetting. Um, and in addition to having a tie into the story, the magical, the great magical artifacts should ideally just be ineffably cool. Even the plus one swords in Lord of the Rings glow blue when they're in the presence of orcs that makes them cooler than a plus one sword uh the horn of roland that you blow to summon the armies of charlemagne is cooler than just a regular old horn um there's got to be a coolness factor and that sadly is something that cannot be taught it can only be guessed at and stabbed at and for every attempt you do uh to make a horn of roland you'll get a lot of horns of summoning or horns of whatevering that are fine. Everyone likes them, but they just don't have that grab. And sometimes the only way you know if you've made something with grab is the player characters or the players rather become obsessed with it and demand more of it and want to know its backstory. They, they, rather than sitting patiently while you tell them the backstory, they are eagerly seeking out more. Right. And of course, you can tie in these two ideas, the idea of it having a history and it going up in power as you discover more about it by you have to learn uh, stuff about your artifact in order to unlock its powers. So you have to go to the Tower of Crystal in order to find the scroll that tells you uh, the incantation that you need to give uh, in order to unlock its uh, fire wreath ability. And then uh, it is not only a, uh, a an artifact, but it drives uh, missions and has a reason for you to go in and do things. So uh, the more that you can think of to make it pull you into uh, new situations, the better. Um, and one way to do that, we spoke of Stormbringer earlier, and I think this is the inspiration for that also, uh, in uh, the uh, AD&D uh, DM guide, there's the suggestion that sometimes artifacts have personality. That you can communicate with them and they can uh, talk to you. And I, uh, as a teenage DM, had a huge amount of uh, mileage out of that by giving the characters a magical amulet that talked to them. And 
of course, the amulet was extremely annoying and demanding. Right. And, and they, kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, they had the push-pull between, well, he's giving us this, uh, you know, I have plus five armor when I'm wearing him and I don't have to, you know, no encumbrance and stuff, but he's kind of a jerk. And, of course, the, the narrative from that is that the uh, amulet was engineering his way to getting a new uh, incarnation and becoming a... Uh, whole again and becoming a person, which of course was extremely disappointing to the group who much preferred him in amulet form. Do you remember any uh, uh, great uh, artifacts that came up in your uh, games? Um, in terms of, I don't do a lot of amulets that talk just because basically, or artifacts that talk basically because um, I I may have uh, realized early that that was a way to just annoy the players and I prefer to annoy the players constructively and directly as opposed to just with a uh, NPC that they have to keep around. I mean, uh, it's just maybe it's a, a, a taste. And maybe my players are right now saying, that's a lie. You have a <laughs> horrible amulet right now. In fact, they're right now carrying um, a, uh, a Grigorim, one of the uh, dark angels that provided wisdom to mankind, uh, around with them in a sphere. And it always talks to them in a creepy voice. But that's because they decided to bind it instead of kill it. That's not my fault. They picked that as an item. They turned it into not... a, they, they took a perfectly fine, annoying character and turned it into an annoying artifact. Exactly. So that was on them. Uh, given that many of my campaigns, as many as I possibly can, start with Earth, my artifacts also start with Earth. So I enjoy it when the player characters have busted into a bank in Northfield, Minnesota, and opened up a safe-to-deposit box and discover the Crown of Thorns is there. Uh, that's a great artifact. Now, when the players then pound it up and snort it, that is a different <laughs> moment in the game. That's when you know you're playing unknown armies. It is exactly when you know you're playing unknown armies. You know that precisely. Um, and that is the, that's what I enjoy. I enjoy taking characters who should not necessarily be in contact with a powerful thing that has a powerful emotive charge in our world and seeing what they do with it in game terms. And that for me is the great fun. It's not just, this is an unbreakable cord. That's also the hair of a giant, um, which is creepy. You know, this is the spear of destiny. What are you going to do with it? This is something that, that we know about that is creepy and awesome. And what exactly are you going to uh, try with it? And, and that way players already know it exists. They don't have to wait for me to tell you, oh, it seems like your problem could be solved with the orb of Salvatius um, in the castle of Solvitude. Um, they know that there's a, an orb somewhere that John D used to use to talk to angels. And if they can just bust it out of the British Museum, they too can talk to angels, which will solve all their problems because angels are creepy NPCs and that never goes wrong. Uh, well, Ken, uh, I detect with my amulet that uh, this uh, segment is turning into a thing uh, one of us, in this case you, always says. And when that happens, it's time for us to close down this hot and or segment and move on uh, via this exciting commercial message to another one on the other side. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. 
and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords all alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knight's Black Agents Solo Ops at your security-cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. Thrice the brindled cat hath mute. Ow! What? They're throwing bricks at us, Ken, because we're in the History Hut, but it's not just any old History Hut. It's a History Hut that opens up into New York City in 1849, putting us in the middle of the Shakespeare Riot. And uh, now if you go and look up the Shakespeare Riot on uh, on the Wikipedia, you will find it labeled the Astor Place Riot because historians generally prefer boring names for things, especially uh, perhaps respectfully so, because this is an incident in which uh, 22 to 31 people died and 120 were injured. But nonetheless... We are not the sorts of historians here, Ken, who prefer things boring, so we're going to refer to this uh, by its more awesome name, the Shakespeare Riot. Uh, So, uh, Ken, culture wars, they're not new. They're never new. Uh, People people got into fights over plays in ancient Greece. They get into fights over uh, everything all the time. And indeed, in America, where people are allowed to fight and darn near encouraged to do it, uh, guess what? We get into fights. Yes, there's some people in this story who were really practiced at getting into fights. Right. It was a it was a fight between uh, hoity-toity Anglophiles, people who sucked up to the hated British, and good muscular Irishmen and uh, their friends and their enemies, but also everybody. Um, the basic story, I guess, is that there are two actors in 18. 18- 30s and 1840s America and England. One of them, the greatest American Shakespeare actor, Edwin Forrest, and one of them, the greatest British Shakespeare actor of his generation, William Charles McCready. Right. And and as I was uh, researching this, I couldn't help but cast contemporary actors in the movie of, of this story. And so uh, Edwin Forrest, uh, he looks a little bit like John C. Riley, And for William Charles McCready... Uh, he's a sort of a finer featured fellow, and uh, I would cast Ben Wishaw in uh, in his role. And uh, so, so there's a big political context uh, to this, yeah. as there always Although is I in a point culture out war. That Edwin Forrest is a brash actor. Yeah, he acts big. He, he he plays big, so he's so he's it would be John C. Riley playing against type because often John C. Riley plays down. Well, you have to get an actor who is uh, skilled enough to. Uh, make you li- like or, or think of this blowhard guy as a human and still also uh, go big and do the performance aspect, right? Right. I'm just saying that when people hear John C. Riley, they may not think of the of the bombastic uh, presentation that, um, uh, that Forrest uh, pioneered. Right. So he might be playing Brian Blessed uh, while on stage. Exactly. He, he becomes Brian Blessed when he's on stage. Perfect. Yes. Uh, and uh, so when uh, McCready, uh, t- he toured the U.S. a number of times, and on his second U.S. tour, uh, Forrest, you know, this was no mere, you know, just sort of sniping each other at, at the cast party. Forrest actually programmed a counter tour to go to all the same cities and play the same Shakespearean roles in order to show him up. And I guess, uh, you know, 
clear the air of all of this uh, uh, presumed uh, relative understatement that McCready would have been laying down in favor of a bigger, bolder, more American style of acting. Um, and uh, not only that, but Forrest uh, went to London to see uh, uh, McCready's production of uh, Macbeth and, uh, and, and hissed him from the audience. So yeah. uh, this was very uh, up close and personal. This was no... Uh, anybody trying to seem like the bigger man here no there was there was um very little uh i mean obviously the american was was brash and seems like he started it but the but mccready was being a jerk <laughs> we all know that and, and what was uh, what were his acts of jerkiness you know being all british <laughs> right okay so um now we may uh, all now fancy. think that it's uh he said that forrest had no taste robin that's what he said he's an actor he doesn't know anything Right. How dare he? How very dare he? So I'm previous discussion of, of so bombast that you on stage. are on Team McCready here. Right. Um, so now um, I'm going to throw that, a brick so at you. That was the personal level of the dispute, but there is a, a bigger political uh, one as well, and it's uh, about uh, class uh, within New York City, but it's also about uh, America's relationship with uh, with England, which now can uh, you know a century and a half later, we think it's sort of quaint and weird that. Uh, uh, Americans would be uh, angry at the British, but of course, uh, this was a, a period of some tension between uh, the two powers. Yes, um, it, it was because the United States was kind of feeling its oats. Uh, Britain was trying to get in our way. Uh, we'd uh, basically got the Monroe uh, Doctrine out there, promulgated, but the British, as the British did with every international law, said, hashtag except Britain. And yes. so they would go around and try to expand into Oregon. This is during the great Oregon contest when uh, they're trying to take our rightful Oregon and we are uh, merely pushing back defensively and they're being big jerks in um, uh, Maine to take our lovely lumber and we're pushing back defensively and they're being jerks in the Caribbean and we're pushing back defensively. So the, the British are just uh, being snotty and America is feeling its oats. Also, this is the time of the great uh, Irish immigration to America because of the Great Potato Famine, which was caused by, put it all together, the British being jerks and monoculture, but mostly the British. So the hated British have driven all the Irish to America. And the last thing the Irish need to see is a bunch of snotty British people playing a bunch of snotty Shakespeare, who, as American scholarship has been definitively proving, would have been an American if he'd been born uh, lucky enough to do so and was certainly an American in his heart. Right. And there's certainly the argument that American accents are closer to the way that Shakespeare sounded than uh than british accents uh, then or now there's also the the class aspect mm -hmm. uh so uh, forrest the the uh, bombastic american is uh, uh stand heavily by uh, uh the folks in the bowery uh the, he's a favorite of the five points gang so you can say what you want about their habit of you know wearing their enemies ears around uh, their necks on necklaces uh, but they uh, they liked their shakespeare they, liked they were their avid theater goers yes um but uh, it offended them uh, greatly that uh, the 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 upper class, that the hoity-toits, uh, wanted their own entertainment palace far from the Bowery. As far as they were concerned, the Bowery... It was wasn't far from the Bowery. That was the problem. It was right next to the Bowery. Astor Place was downtown. Ah. Um, so, uh, but it certainly offended them then that the, the hoity-toits built Astor Place near Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so they were offended not only... Uh, by the prospect of uh, William Charles McCready uh, treading the boards, but the fact that there were boards there at all for uh, the the rich top hat wearers. And like many, many uh, establishments since, 
uh, Astor Opera House had a dress code. And the dress code was designed to be impossible for the underclass to conform to, or very inconvenient. So it was white vests, which, of course, you can't keep clean if you live in the Bowery, and kid gloves, which are very expensive, because kid leather is the most expensive kind of leather. So similar to if you see a nightclub that says no sports gear, that nightclub is saying no African-American people. Uh, a opera house that says only white vests is saying no Irish. And that is the kind of provocation to which the Irish need not put. Also, New York is in a political changeover because the Tammany Hall power, the great Democrat Tammany Hall power has been broken by the Whigs. And there's a new Whig mayor who's coming in and cleaning stuff up. And so no one likes him either. Um, And especially no one in the Bowery likes him. Uh, So uh, dress code or not, uh, the the Bowery gang uh, shows up. Uh, to a performance of Macbeth at the uh, uh, Astor Place Opera House. Uh, and uh, they show up uh, loaded with the proverbial vegetables. It's not just a, a thing in Warren Brothers cartoons. They've got stuff to hurl. And uh, they uh, show up and they uh, they bought tickets and dress code or no, uh, they uh, get in with their rotten uh, cabbages and, and uh, carrots and they uh, bring the show to a halt. And it's a uh, a big uh, fuss. It's a it's a near riot, uh, uh, as as you uh, might say. And uh, at that point, McCready says, "Enough of this. Uh, I can go back to London and uh, perform without uh, finding myself in the middle of a cultural maelstrom." Because of course, our uh, lower crust vegetable toters uh, are kept firmly away from from the theater, and uh, I I don't need to be uh, humiliated like this. So the culturati of New York. Uh, including Washington Irving and Herman Melville, um, issue a, a letter urging him to stay and to protect uh, culture and understatement in Shakespearean acting. And that means three days later... Uh, now, the- let, me, let me read a simple handbill stating the facts of the case prepared by an American writer and journalist of some repute named Ned Buntline. Yes. And this will just... This will explain the, the degree to which no one wants trouble. <clears throat> Working men... Shall Americans or English rule in this city? The crew of the British steamer have threatened all, all Americans who shall dare to express their opinions this night at the English aristocratic opera house. We advocate no violence, but a free expression of opinion to all public men, <laughs> working men, free men, stand by your lawful rights, American committee. We advocate no violence, by the way, is in the smallest type imaginable on this poster because it was so obvious. It didn't need to be yes, said. Because when the rubber hits the road, Ned Buntline shows up with rocks, uh, which he means no violence as he, as he right. them. And a, and a half a dead sheep. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, some listeners may be going, Ned Buntline, that name sounds familiar. And so the, the culture war is even evident in who gets whose writers. So uh, high class uh, Herman Melville and Washington Irving in the canon of American literature are on one side. And Ned Buntline is a pulp writer. He's a writer of Westerns. And uh, later in his career, he will become the hype man for uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. And uh, he will yeah. puff up his reputation and write... Uh, uh, no fun ruining in his uh, stories of uh, of uh, Buffalo Bill. So Ned Buntline's story continues, uh, but in this uh, particular instance, he's uh, got a bunch of rocks, and he's the one uh, one of the ones who helps uh, turn a a fuss, a commotion, into a, a full on uh, riot. A and brouhaha. So, yes. 
So the uh, opera house at this point, they prepared for the uh, the onslaught. They've made sure this time around that only their side gets uh, tickets. So they've uh, papered the house with uh, uh, good uh, Anglophiles and uh, with their with their spotless shirts and their kid gloves. They boarded up the windows of the opera house, but that still isn't enough. And uh, the uh, led by Buntline, the uh, gang from uh, Five Points uh, converges on Astor Place and. At this point, as is often the case, the uh, the security forces who are there uh, meant to prevent violence uh, begin to touch it off because the uh, troops who've been mustered to protect the Opera House are the uh, 7th Regiment New York Volunteers. Um, and that uh, uh, sounds all uh, upright and fine, but you can tell their uh, associations by their nicknames. They were known as the Silk Stocking Regiment, or the Blue Bloods, because this was the uh, the volunteers in this particular regiment were the the uh, hot blooded sons of the uh, of the uh, the upper crust, as it were. Who, of course, by English standards, were all be uh, not counted as any kind of crust whatsoever. But in New York, they were the uh, uh, the top uh, folks. And so, uh, what do they do with the rock throwers? They were people whose family could afford an extra horse. <laughs> yes, and so they open fire on the enraged crowd, and that's where the casualties come in. Uh, as I well, said technically, before. they opened fire into the air. Then they continued fire into the enraged crowd. Yes. I mean, the, the, the they fired in the air, shot. and the Irish were like, we're not in the air. Keep throwing rocks. Well, uh, there may be some side-switching going on here, but uh, uh, at any rate... Oh, I, I, am, I am, as always, devoted to the truth, Robin. Yeah. That's what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, it uh, becomes a big disaster, and... Uh, then ushers in the the uh, in the aftermath of this, uh, the, the authorities start thinking, hmm, maybe we need to invent riot police and have uh, police officers armed with batons and uh, uh, in order to prepare for uh, such a thing. And of course, uh, in New York, the police officers will be drawn uh, not from the upper crust but from the the working class uh, with the uh, you know the long tradition of the the Irish cop will uh, will begin. After this, and Astor Place itself never recovers from this. Nope. They mount another season, but nobody wants to go to the theater that touched off uh, blood running in the streets of New York. And so, uh, about a year later, uh, the building is sold. They want to go to in. Disaster Place, as they call yes. it. And so, it uh, becomes the New York Mercantile Library. Um, so, uh, this sounds like absolutely uh, in. Uh, uh, any kind of uh, 19th century America uh, game, you're going to have to uh, run something if you uh, have characters in this period that has some sort of uh, thing that they have to do right in the middle of this uh, uh, riot. And uh, there may be, of course, there's uh, it's a production of Macbeth. So uh, is there a ritual going on stage? Uh, why? Yes, of course there is. Uh, so, Ken, how would you draw uh, uh, player characters into the... Uh, into the Shakespeare riot. I mean, I think that, uh, and this, a lot of this depends on what the player characters are up to, but if it's a sort of a standardy investigating the weirdness type game, what I probably would say is that, uh, like you say, there's a ritual going on on stage and maybe McCready is part of it. Maybe he's the ringleader of this, uh, of this coven, or maybe he's just the front man and it's the people playing the witches that are actually the, 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 the sneaks. Um, that, that are, that are out there summoning demons or whatever it is the witches are doing. And so 
your job is not necessarily just to disrupt the ritual, but is to steal the cauldron or some thing like that so that you can't just sit up in the balcony and throw dead sheep at the stage and count kind of a well done job. You have to get into the theater all the way backstage and then out with something large bulky that identifies you as a target for the rioters, namely a big uh, theatrical prop. And I think that is what makes it the most fun because that forces players to engage with the whole nine yards. Whereas if you're just like, you're playing Irishman, you hate Englishmen, let's go. Then you're just doing at best a combat scene uh, in which you're being shot at by cavalry. And one hopes no one wants to play the cavalry who wind up gunning down American citizens because that's that's awful. So I think that something that that draws you through it and makes it a thing that is happening around you and endangers you from all sides is more fun than putting you on one side or the other and sending you uh, into the riot and then back out of the riot because that's it's just another day in New York City, right? Right. Well, uh, now that we've endangered the uh, player characters on uh, from all sides, it's time for us to retreat uh, behind the safety of this exciting commercial message and see what other completely unrelated thing lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Immunize this podcast from potions that turn it evil by joining such Patreon backers as Matt Farr, Miko Arexanen, Trung Boy, Wayne Rossi, and Brian Thomas. The fog on the moor, the howling at the moon, and the sight of a pentagram in some attractive stranger's palm welcome us once more into a werewolfy installment of the horror hut, where beloved Patreon backer Phil Masters and many other beloved Patreon backers push their glasses up on their nose and say, sure, Robin is correct about the structural problem with werewolf movies, that the protagonist and the antagonist are the same one, but what about, they say, with the air of someone striking a killing blow, Jekyll and Hyde! <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde is always successful. Everyone loves Jekyll and Hyde. Ha ha! Got you now. Which is a little rude, but there you are. That's what happens right. when well, people hear the truth, Robin. They can't handle it. Right. Well, b beloved Patreon backer uh, Phil Masters, who uh, has led the charge among other backers of, of uh, asking for this uh, uh, follow-up uh, to the Cinema Hut. You'll notice that I've moved this, however, from the Cinema Hut into the Horror Hut because 
the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, is a uh, literary classic as well as a series of films and television that are uh, based on that classic. And uh, first of all, it is not a subgenre of horror. It is a particular uh, a narrative that is sometimes adapted. And it's been a, a fair while since there's been a really great uh, adaptation of it. Now, a friend of the podcast, Jorge Luis Borges, makes the point that all adaptations of uh, the Jekyll and Hyde story are better in his view than the original, uh, which is actually quite substantially different than what you might be thinking if you've just seen the movies. Because in the novella by Robert Louis Stevenson, who Borges values much more highly than I think uh, anyone in English values him, uh, the uh, protagonist is neither Jekyll uh, nor Hyde, but in fact is uh, one Gabriel John Utterson, who is a friend to Jekyll, and he's basically the uh, investigator of this case, of how these strange acts of violence uh, start occurring around his uh, lovely, mild-mannered friend, Dr. Jekyll, and there's uh, some uh, weird uh, figure sort of in, uh, involved in his life committing acts of violence, and uh, this character, this protagonist, is the one who investigates the case in true gumshoe fashion, and finds out as a reveal that uh, Hyde and Jekyll are one and the same. Now, of course, the movies, uh, most uh, famously to us now, although these were not the first, uh, Frederick March's starring version in 1931 and the 1941 version uh, with Spencer Tracy. Famously, March's one, uh, he, uh, as Hyde, has werewolfy makeup, whereas the Tracy version, uh, he just acts the difference. And so, uh, the Tracy Hyde is much more human than the uh, obviously monstrous March version. These ones are both clearly moving, not into literally being a werewolf movie, but they're werewolf adjacent. Uh, right. And so we have the transformation and the, the person discovering. But even then, I would say that uh, Hyde uh, is less... Uh, it, it's not a curse story the way the the Wolfman is and the uh, what we think of as or or American Werewolf in uh, in London. These are not stories of just someone who is uh, randomly attacked and has this terrible thing visited upon them. A good person turned bad by fate and circumstance. It's uh, not a story of dealing with uh, a, a curse, uh, but rather it's that horror staple, the good old fashioned thing of. Trying to learn something that you shouldn't be learning. A little Faustian overreach. Faustian overreach. And uh, in this case, uh, what Jekyll learns is that there is a monster inside him all along. And mm -hmm. uh, what could the worst thing that could possibly happen to a, a good uh, Victorian English gentleman? Well, he could discover that he's working class. Dun, dun, dun. And short. Yes. He's not just working class, he's short. Yes, he's he's physically devolved. He's not a big hulking monster. Um, and uh, he's, he's the very sort of person who would go and attack a Shakespearean production acted by this fine, subtle acting of a, of a say, uh, William Charles McCready. Um, and so um, th you can do that either sort of the straight up way of uh, Jekyll... Uh, is a uh, a good man who becomes evil because he makes a, a, a act of Faustian overreach, or I think in a more interesting contemporary psychological version, uh, he reveals the evil that has always been within him. That the uh, the uh, it's an id versus superego struggle. It's uh, you know a, a, a Freudian uh, battle where the, uh, the the actual evil of Jekyll uh, comes out, and so even then. I would argue that Jekyll and Hyde 
in the uh, typical adaptation are not the protagonist and antagonist who never meet. Uh, they seem to be at odds, but really it's an, an anti-hero who has two facets to his personality. And it's when uh, the his dramatic arc, as it were, between um, civilization and beastliness uh, finally resolve in uh, him becoming a beast uh, utterly and uh, he is destroyed, which is, I think, different than the typical uh, werewolf curse from outside. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, the, I think, the most successful modern Jekyll and Hyde is Mary Riley starring uh, uh, Julia Roberts, and the reason that it's successful and it's not super successful is that it once again casts it as a mystery and as a very familiar horror story where uh, there's a young woman and she's in a house and weird stuff is going on and she doesn't know. And we, the viewers have the ironic knowledge of, Oh, you're in Jekyll and Hyde, but it's, it doesn't spoil the mystery in the way that, that it does. If you're doing a straight up adaptation where Dr. Utterson is like, I wonder what could be wrong with my friend, Dr. Jekyll. And you'd be like, he's Mr. Hyde, read a book because we know that it's a horror movie and we know that in the same way that we know when the young babysitter goes into the old house or the uh, young bride goes into the old house or the other young woman in threat goes into the old house or into the weird family that bad doings is afoot. And we know probably even who's going to do it. And we're just watching to see the the horror come about. I think Mary Riley structurally does that. And so yeah, she, she basically replaces Utterson, who even more than, more than Harker is the, a gothic literary figure who just gets tossed out the, the window <laughs> in all adaptations, uh, even though he's a perfectly serviceable protagonist in the good old fashioned tradition of someone who investigates weirdness and finds I mean, out Peter what's Cushing going on. played him in the, in the hammer one. So that was something, but still. Right. And so, uh, so I think, I, I think the difference is that, uh, yes, the film adaptations are kind of werewolfy, but nonetheless, this is about a, what is in, uh, getting out uh, rather than a monstrousness from without that you are just uh, destroyed. So it's uh, Jekyll is is more of an Adam figure. He's uh, looking at the uh, he's looked at the forbidden knowledge and uh, and then uh, suffers as a result. Whereas the typical werewolf victim is more of a Job figure. He's just being attacked for no good reason, and he gets crushed by the universe just because uh, you know there's predators out in the woods, and sometimes they. They bite he's you he's even a man who says his prayers by night. There's yep. nothing wrong with him. But yeah. Dr. Jekyll is shooting himself up with weird glowing hormones and so therefore kind of deserves whatever happens to him. Right. And and that's the other point is that it's more of an addiction metaphor, right? Is yeah. that he's uh, he takes a substance uh, which kind of resembles laudanum and, uh, and heads off uh, into the uh, uh, abyss to go and engage in... Uh, lower class chicanery. Lower class chicanery and, and libertinism. So it's a, a much more of an overt... Uh, metaphor for uh, for addiction, uh, which we normally think of in terms of uh, vampires, but here uh, uh, Jekyll is clearly uh, uh, an addict, and uh, I think that's something that can be uh, played up even more in a uh, contemporary adaptation. Um, and the the TV series Jekyll, uh, the UK series, is also kind of fun, but uh, again, there's no Utterson equivalent, and it continues the uh, you know the Hyde. Uh, Jekyll dichotomy of uh, two sides of the same uh, coin, two bent uh, versions of the same uh, alter ego. And uh, I, I think I'm 
I think I'm recapitulating. Yeah. And we know what that happens, uh, Ken. What do we do? What do we do? We yeah. uh, move to another hut. We transform into a, 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 a different identity that fits in with a perhaps lower class hut. Let it be so. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that his uh, superiors at uh, Time Incorporated used to send our hero back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, Ken has been summoned to the side of his time chariot by beloved Patreon backer Andrea Coletta, who asks... What does history look like if you ensure that Richard Nixon's acceptance as an FBI agent is not thwarted by budget cuts? Uh, so, Ken, first, first of all, is this a better timeline and therefore one that you uh, might just effectuate? Uh, better is a strong word, right? I mean, uh, there is um, there, there's a lot to be said about both timelines. Uh, one of them uh, doesn't have Nixon. Or rather, it has him in a relatively harmless role as an FBI guy. Uh, the other one, however, has kind of a differently weird, unstable Republican become president. So six of one, right? Just it was not a good year for picking vice presidents for Eisenhower. Let's just put it that way. So uh, is there something that uh, you or some other time force does to ensure that there's a little more budget uh, for the FBI that year so that they uh, are able to accept the application of promising Newcomer Richard Milhouse Nixon? Well, the budget cut thing turns out to be, uh, as one might guess, it with a story involving both J. Edgar Hoover and Richard M. Nixon, a lie. Um, <laughs> what happened was Nixon applied to the FBI. He was uh, interviewed. He got a full physical. There was, uh, you know, nothing wrong with his application. Everyone passed him up and they said, this is a great guy. He's going to be terrific. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover writes him a letter at Duke Law School that says, you are approved, and once there's a vacancy open, you know, you're going to be given, you're made an agent. And so the uh, problem comes about when Nixon says, great, I'd love to be um, a FBI agent, but can it wait till I take the bar in California? Because if I get a better job, maybe I'll do that. And at that point, one expects that the FBI said, you know what? Screw you if you don't want to be in the FBI. We got lots of guys lined up. We got guys who can, uh, I don't know, play football, Richard Nixon, you jerk. 
and uh, they 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 bounce it. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was was notorious for not taking any whippersnapperism from uh, applicants, right? And so he was he was it was a non whippersnapper agency in those days, and so. Um, uh, it was probably the fact that Nixon, uh, <laughs> entirely uncharacteristically, tergiversated and waffled between two options until he found the one that gave him a better main chance uh, that caused him not to become an FBI agent. And the budget cut thing was something that Hoover and Nixon made up to tell uh, on sort of the rubber chicken circuit in Washington, D.C., when they would appear together or they would talk um, and, and do a bit. And then Nixon would say, right. and if Congress would just approve my funds for uh, law enforcement, then we'd have no problem with these hippies and rioters. And everyone would clap and then Nixon would be beloved. Yes, it was a, a hilarious uh, parable in which Republicans are negatively affected by budget cuts. It's a beautiful story, but it is not true. Uh, so that means it's more complicated then uh, to uh, get him into the FBI. Does that mean that you had to... Uh, Interfere with his bar exam? Oh, no. The, the simplest way to do it is just to nobble the bar, uh, the, the bar exam and to uh, make it so that he doesn't, in fact, pass. And uh, Nixon was a, f- a fond of a late night poker game, possibly with some beverages. Raised Quaker or not raised Quaker. He was known to pour back a couple. Um, but uh, a man raised Qu- Quaker in a poker game is no match for a time traveler also in a poker game. So six of one half dozen of the other. He takes the bar exam a little more hungover. And uh, he knows he's not going to do well. So he grabs at the FBI chance before he can be rejected from the bar and therefore uh, rejected from the FBI. So that's the interference in the time stream. Uh, What does the uh, new alternate history look like? Well, first of all, Richard Nixon rises uh, within the FBI because um, as a paranoid, detail-oriented weasel, he is obviously cut out for executive authority in that bureau. He probably cannot become director because... Hoover uh, lives very, very long. But of course, Nixon lives until 1990. So maybe Nixon becomes uh, director of the FBI. But of course, by the time that Hoover dies, maybe the Democrats are back in power because Dwight Eisenhower, instead of Richard Nixon at the 1960 uh, in 1952 Republican convention, picks the other U.S. senator from California, William Noland. Um, William Noland was also very anti-communist. Um, he was uh, on the conservative wing, which Eisenhower needed after he'd uh, cheated Taft out of the nomination. And so Eisenhower unifies the party, as he did in our history, but with Bill Noland. And Bill Noland uh, goes on to become vice president and, again, win uh, in 1960, because unlike Nixon, Eisenhower actually campaigns for him. Uh, and that is where we begin to go a little bit off the rails, because Bill Noland is also a very strong opponent of sending anybody to French Indochina. He thinks it's stupid. And so the uh, ongoing degringolade that happens in Vietnam happens basically without Bill Nolan's involvement. He sends advisors and aid to Diem, but he doesn't mount a coup against Diem. Diem uh, basically pulls a South Korea, and we have the situation in Vietnam that we've discussed already with the Leave Diem uh, alternate history. The trouble is Bill Noland was a big gambler and a big drunk. And so Bill Noland has got mob ties, just like the guy who did win in 1960. And unlike that guy, he's not assassinated. He serves two terms and then scandal erupts. And he is um, uh, identified as being uh, not necessarily in the pay of, but owing a great deal of money to various gangsters. And so that leads to a big, big problem. The Democrats take over in 1968 after uh, Nolan's uh, second term ends in uh, scandal and corruption. 
And uh, that means that when F, uh, when uh, J. Edgar Hoover does die, Richard Nixon is not going to get approved to become head of the FBI. He resigns and writes a bunch of books about his career as a FBI agent. Uh, and that's the story of uh, the alternate history. The trouble being Bill Noland also does not uh, open up to China. And so we have a ongoing Cold War with uh, the United States on the wrong side of both uh, communist powers. And so there is a, uh, and without Vietnam, there is less immediate tension between Mao and Khrushchev. So there is less friction between the two. Um, and in fact, there's a couple of possibilities. One of them in which that steady cooperation leads to a sudden flare up as it did in our history in 1969 and a uh, nuclear exchange, which did not happen. Uh, or it leads to a steadily diminishing American position in the Cold War as the Democrats run America throughout the crucial resource war period of the 70s and early 80s. And uh, do not take the financial moves that uh, the Reagan administration did to shut off Soviet access to credit. So either worse Cold War or nuclear war, including and plus gangsters uh, with their hands on the on the Oval Office. So that's why much as we would rather leave uh, Dick Nixon in obscurity with his little dog checkers, uh, we are stuck with Dick Nixon as president of the United States. Well, uh, that's uh, I guess uh, the time principle here is it can always be worse. It can always be worse. I think that if someone hasn't figured that out about history yet. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's sort of, a, it may just be a, a, a staple element of time travel stories. It may, it may. Now, did you do this and then undo it? Or did you have to undo, uh, some, uh, you know, the, the reptiles or somebody, uh, hobbling his, uh, his bar exam? Oh, I, I did it. I mean, I was given a get Richard Nixon out of my hair brief and I figured, yeah, what the hell? Bill Nolan's a solid anti-communist. Let's see what happens. And then sure enough trouble and so i had to go back and undo my do which is you had to go slip a better bar exam uh under the transom right i had to go you know put a bunch of black coffee in it i had to stay up all night with a sobbing richard nixon which is more than enough punishment i don't see why i should have also had to fill out all those forms <laughs> uh well you know uh if just like uh, uh writing you know uh history is just all it's not about the initial version it's all about the revisions right it's all about the rewrite yes uh, well, uh, uh, one thing that uh, that you can be sure, though, is that the time stream uh, will uh, guarantee that there will be another episode of this podcast, which will drop a mere week from whenever this dropped. Uh, so check your podcast. If you're behind, it may be there already. What? Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from being slammed in the evidence locker at Quantico by throwing in with beloved Patreon backers. Aryan Poutsma. Brendan Clority. Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichholz. And Daniel Markvig. Prove your gift-giving superiority with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest arty design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>